G'day. Welcome to Project Leap, the podcast for doers. And if you are following us on one of our social or digital media platforms, you would know that. Uh, we, you can find us on Facebook or you can find us at uh, project-leap.com.au. Now, I, just before we get into today's fantastic interview, which we're very excited about, not just because this is the first of our wonderful male guests that we'll be interviewing, uh, I'd just like to put a big shout out to our partners and sponsors. That's A Thousand Invisible Threads, Amanda Powell Digital, iScribe Consulting, Kaizen Media and Purple Wax. So thank you very much to everyone behind those organisations. You've been a big help in getting us started. My name is Meredith Pappas and along with my fabulous co-presenter, Tara Nevin, uh, we are in the entrepreneurial space ourselves and we are in the regions and that's what this is all about. Innovators and entrepreneurs taking that leap doing what they do and backing themselves in the rural, regional and remote context in Australia. So, Tara, how are you? I'm good, Meredith. How are you? I'm very excited about this interview today. Me too. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest, Matt Galinsky, who, as far as I'm concerned, absolutely needs no introduction as his reputation precedes him purely by his cooking and, amongst other things, of course, and his role as a voice for regional producers. Um, I actually went to school with Matt, so I'm really excited about this. This is probably the first time I've spoken to him in possibly 30 years, but um, I will actually... To share a bit of a little bit about Matt for those of you that out there who may not know him, which would be surprising. So Matt's love of food started at a really early age. He grew up on a tropical farm on the Sunshine Coast, surrounded by fresh, fresh produce, and this has influenced his style of cooking throughout his entire career. And this is what I find amazing, Meredith, that by the age of 12, he decided he wanted to be a chef and has continued that over the last 31 years and continues to drive his passion for the industry. And that, if anything, just improves day by day. So um, probably a few things that many people might not be aware about, Matt, is he actually started his own catering company in Noosa, which went for six years. Um, And he now uses this experience and knowledge to promote local producers in his role as the Gimpies region's food and culinary tourism ambassador, as well as travelling to events all over the country to help other regions showcase their food identity and also show the world what makes their area unique, particularly in food production. Uh, Matt doesn't just stop there. He also writes recipes for food columns and various publications and is engaged as a recipe developer by food producers around Australia. When he's not busy wearing one of his many chef's hats, he's playing music and is a keen long-distance runner and has recently just had a baby. So congratulations, Matt, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. First of all, Tara, you just said um, that Matt's just had a baby. I think that's the story right there. Congratulations, <laughs> Matt. You must be the first bloke ever to have had a baby. Oh, no, it's, it's quite, uh, quite unique experience. So you're um, very skilled. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you are all that in the bag of potato chips, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. So, look, there's this great Confucius saying that I love. And it's do what you love and never work a day in your life. You, I just love that you knew what you wanted to do from the age of 12 and you kept with it. You just stuck to that. Tell us a little bit about that journey to start off with, if you would, Matt. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, like Tara was saying in the introduction, I did, I grew up around food and from a really early age, I was in the kitchen at home on the farm cooking, you know, cooking the evening meals and doing all that sort of thing. So and I, so I, I've always loved that. Um, and by the time I got to high school, by the time me and Tara were 
hitting grade eight in, at Namble High, um, <laughs> I'd already decided. Don't don't tell anyone that because didn't our ex prime minister go to Nambour? Oh, I didn't. When you when you when you started saying when Tara and I were hitting you, and I'm like, wait, where's this going? <laughs> Yeah, and uh, by the way, Tara, it's only been 28 years since we saw oh, each other. So sorry, I'm making it sound older. Don't make us sound older than we actually are, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, but by the, by the time I got to, to grade eight, I was looking forward to doing home ec at school. You know, that was I, I didn't enjoy sewing. I still haven't finished my shorts. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but by the, I got through the six months of sewing and then got onto the cooking thing. And by the time I'd finished grade eight, I knew that that's, you know, I went into grade nine doing French and biology and art and anything that anything to do with food and cooking, that's what I wanted to do. So I'm sure I tried your apple crumble in grade eight and it wasn't too bad. It probably wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised actually. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I made a lovely, I remember I made a lovely pecan tort in um, for German class one time. Do you remember that? Uh, wow. Yeah. And uh, I didn't even get to try it because all the kids just, <laughs> just ate it. Went on a frenzy. Uh, did you get to cook something French for French Day? If you if you uh, studied French, I don't think I did. I don't remember it anyway. If I did, but um, yeah, look, I mean, and so it, it's it's been what past how old am I now? I was thirteen then, so it has been thirty two odd years since I probably decided to be a chef. And you know, I was cooking for a group of people on Saturday night. I got auctioned off at a charity dinner to, to cook for some people, and. So it's a nice feeling honoring that deal and uh, going for them. And I just, you know, there's 12 people in someone's house, and um, and every time I do stuff like that, I just go, oh, I just love doing this. You know, I love the mm. the focus that you have to keep, and the you know the the um, the adrenaline of it all, and making sure that everything's you know that, that it's spot on and, and right. And every time I do one of those things, I actually learn, and that's probably the thing I love best about cooking is. I've been doing it 32 years and I could easily do it another 32 years and not even scratch the surface of what there is mm. to learn about cooking. So it's this ongoing process of learning every every day, every week. And you love using local produce. And I just just taking, I'm based in Mackay, Matt, and mm. whenever there's a, a region that has a competitor or a contestant on one of the cooking shows, you know, the, the, the competitions. Matt was on Ready, Set, to do. Cook as well. Oh, there you go. But, you know, likes of uh, MKR and all of those, there's great, you know, exuberance and excitement about whether they'll get through to the next round or, or what have we. But it's that real regional pride, isn't it, around their produce and what they can produce. And when they come to town and, you know, in Mackay's example or the Sunshine Coast example, being able to showcase what's good about your region is something really special. And that's the other thing that you've really committed to throughout your career, isn't it, is regions. And I think probably growing up in a, you know, in a country area surrounded by food, that certainly helped. But in the last, I mean, probably I was at Ricky Ricardo's in Noosa for six years and there, and being the proximity of, say, cooking in Noosa to the produce. So if I was in a big city, I'd be, um, I wouldn't be as close to that produce and able to have that, access, that direct access to it. But during my time there, and that was sort of 2000 to 2006, I was the head chef there. I built all these relationships with producers. So I'd have a guy that he'd just bring my lemons each week and he was the lemon farmer and I'd have the guy that just brought the asparagus when it was in season and come to the back door and, you know, three boxes of asparagus for the week and that sort of thing. So you've got access to that um, and that's where it started to build in me that, you know, this is a, it's, it's a bit more work to go and source stuff and you need to be organised, you need to do all that, but 
it's um, those relationships that you build and the, the quality of the produce you actually receive by going locally is, um, you know, improves your food so much more um, than just bringing the wholesaler and it's, you know, mm. probably been from Cairns to Sydney, back to Brisbane and then back to Noosa before it gets to you. So, um you know, one of the things I've always been curious about in your career is you have really maintained your profile within region, regional areas. You know, certainly with your profile, you could have gone to Metro. Um, now, I remember watching you cook one day and you were talking about the fact that you do love that you know where your product comes from and that you know where, you know, the person, you know, the story. Is that what, kept, has, what has kept you in these regions in terms of... Um, well, I guess... You, you and me both grew up in, in this region and we know how good it is. Um, it's pretty hard to, you know, I mean, I've done my time in cities and, and all that sort of stuff and I've done plenty of travelling, but I've always been brought back to here because I do love it. Mm. And because, it, I mean, as a chef, you've got, in, in on the Sunshine Coast, you've got um, clientele who, uh, you know, and the demographic that are prepared to pay the money to eat your food. You've got the access to a huge diversity of ingredients um, and direct access to it without having to travel hundreds of kilometres to get to it. So, you know, from my point of view, I, I um, you know, and I love living here, you know, I love the the, the bush and I love the beach and everything else. So um, it's about sort of having a lifestyle as well as being in a position to to have a clientele that you can cook for and I can, you know, I can cook my food for those people. So, so tell us about some of these these local producers that you've sort of run into and that you've met with from the regions. I mean, uh, we're pretty passionate about some of the doers in these regions, and I've heard you talk about some of these producers and some of the innovative ideas that they've come up with to actually create multiple in- levels of income on their farm rather than just one on small small plots, for example. So, share with us some of the people that you've met and some of the cool things that they're doing. Yeah, look, I think you know, there's there's some things that have really changed in farming. Um, since I was a kid, since I was growing up on the farm, we had 30 acres in palm woods and mum and dad grew bananas and pawpaws and avocados and, and some small crops and that sort of thing. And in those days, so this was going back 30-odd years ago, it was actually really hard to be a farmer on that size farm competing with sending your product off to the markets, um, competing with somewhere like Bowen that was growing 5,000 acres of pawpaws you just couldn't compete when it was the season then your product is worth nothing. These days what's happened is smaller farms, people are going on to smaller farms and, and thankfully um, a few more younger people um, and go, and looking at it in a different way. They're taking their product direct to the market. So we've seen an increase in farmers' markets all over Australia. They're everywhere and they're, they're not a, there's not only great uh, diversity of stalls in farmers' markets these days, people have actually started supporting it on a regular basis. So they'll go and do their weekly shop at Noosa Farmers Markets or at Kiwana Farmers Markets. They'll get to know all the producers. And so as a, far, as a small farmer, you're able to actually survive by getting the actual price that you should be getting for your product. You're getting, you don't have to pay an agent. You don't have to pay for transport. <laughs> you can recycle your boxes and all those costs that usually incurred by having to try and compete with a big market in a, you know, Rockley or something like that. There's people, you know, and and so what's happening is now they're looking at, okay, I've got 
I've got a strawberry farm, a small strawberry farm, and I can pick my strawberries that morning and take them to the farmer's market. And any seconds fruit I get, I can turn that into strawberry sorbet. Uh, and then I'll send some of my product off to be made into strawberry cider and I'll get some of my strawberries, I'll cut the bad bits off the seconds and I'll send them off to be freeze-dried and then I can sell the freeze-dried strawberries into the restaurants. So it's it's about thinking outside the square. It's not like, oh, I'm a strawberry farmer and I'm sending all my strawberries off to market and during the peak of the season when I'm competing with a, a farmer that's got 2 million strawberry plants, I'm only getting 20 cents a punnet and I might as well throw them on the ground. It's about just looking at that a lot of people are doing that. They're looking at different ways. If they're a macadamia grower, they're starting to make macadamia butter and roasting their macadamias and putting flavourings on them and that sort of thing. And having been able to actually have a marketplace like farmers markets where people can go and sell their product direct and create a relationship with their customers has changed the way that whole local food element goes and it really does rely on those markets and things like that for people to succeed. I'm really interested in that story. Um, we talk a lot on this podcast about your need to diversify and create mm-hmm. leverage within your service or your products. And I find that in some ways, sometimes farmers do that better. I talk to entrepreneurs all the time and they're still thinking about one product and maybe a couple of different distribution channels, whereas you're saying they're taking one product, different distribution channels and creating different products. Do you think that happens out of necessity because farmers need to create more leverage off their farms and say an entrepreneur out of one product. I just find that I talk to a lot of farmers and that seems to happen more often in that yeah, space. I mean, yeah, look, I think it's it's almost like a snowballing effect, you know, when one farmer does something and it succeeds, then other people will look at that model and go, oh, I could do this my thing and, you know, I grow limes, so I could make lime cordial or I could, you know, whatever, and that goes from there to, you know, I, I've, I've been... And they're talking about me being the Gimpy Food Ambassador um, and I've been doing that role for about three years now and I work for the, the Gimpy Regional Council um, to help promote the farmers of the Gimpy region. So over the last three years I've gotten to know them all quite well. Um, I go to their farms and I, I see what they do, how they grow their pigs or their strawberries or their button squash or whatever it might happen to be. I get to know that person Um and in that three years that I've been doing that role so far, I've just watched that that whole pool of people expand as other people come on and go, oh, that's how they're doing that. I could make that work for my my business as well. And so it is a bit like that, you know, um, that hundred, what is it, the hundredth monkey ideal where, you know, one person, it's it's like this collective consciousness of uh of people within a region, which is, I think it's fantastic. So you mentioned before about the young, the younger farmers coming on as well and the younger people, those new generations. How are you stoking that interest and that passion? I mean, because I imagine it would be a lot of that generation bringing in uh, this innovation and, and the new ideas and possibly those left field concepts that might not have been thought of. Yeah, look, and I mean, I think that there's a long way to go with that. There's, it's not a... Terror, you know, even with all this, the innovation and the, you know, good business models and all that sort of stuff, it's still a tough business to be in, you know. You, mm. And so it's not attract, that attractive as a financial, you know, um, you, you know, 
successfully financial thing to do if you've got a young family or whatever and you're trying to make a go of it, then it can be really, really tough. You know, you just need a hailstorm to come through and wipe out all your strawberries and that's done for the year. Um, and it can be devastating. So it's not it's not there yet that I, I don't think that young people are embracing farming, but it is. I am seeing it more and more. Um, and, I, you know, there is, um, you know, I'll give you an example um, of a, <coughs> a garlic farmer who's just down the road from me here, grows beautiful Russian garlic, and he started making black garlic from his, his garlic, which is fermenting it for months and months and selling, bagging it up and selling it. But he still has to go off to the mines and and work to sustain his farm because it's not, you know, and it would and be great if he got to a point where he didn't have to go away, but there's still that element to it as well. So, but I think, you know, to, I guess to answer your question, yes, the, 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 that fresh blood and to go into farming and, and be innovative is, is certainly driven by maybe a younger um age group is do you think there's enough being done to support those likes of the garlic farmer for instance i mean he still has to substantiate his income by going to the mines which there's a stark reality shift there isn't it between going to a mine and then coming back and being this beautiful black garlic um, farmer do you know um very stark but is there enough support being given do you think to young innovators and entrepreneurs to to get that up and going interestingly enough yeah i reckon it's getting there that's Mm. that's something that's you know me being given this role as the gimpy's food ambassador is driven by the economic development department of the gimpy council so they're the ones that engaged me was the economic development department they want to increase the amount of people who are doing this and support them because food tourism is a massive thing now you know, every council, you're in Mackay, I come up there every year and that I've seen, watched that grow over the last three years. I do a big dinner in Mackay every year. I'm hopefully coming again this year. I just spoke to them the other day. Oh, good. Um, where I go up and I do, you know, a dinner for 200 people using all the, the produce of that region. And that, so I've done that three years in a row now. Mm. First year I came up and it, they were just starting to try and build this whole food tourism thing going on in that whole Sunday region mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I was able to get, you know, corn from this person and pork from that person and put together a dinner using this stuff. Now, last time I was, last year, so that's three years in a row, last year I was up there, I did a dinner, three-course dinner for a couple hundred people and I think I had over 60 producers bringing me stuff from all over that region to the kitchen and so then that had increased so much more from that first year. So you can see... The council's behind it. Their economic development departments are going, hmm, there's money in this food tourism stuff because mining mm-hmm. parked it. You know, we need to create another another industry here, another economy, and that's a good one to do. You know, people come to the Sunday region, they want to know what food's grown there or they want to try it. Um, and so I think there is, um, you know, the councils, I'm seeing it, how, you know, like I say, I'm going to Gundawindi, I'm going to Blackhall, I'm going to Billawila. They're all council jobs, you know. They're all the councils approaching me and going, hey, you have a genuine love of this whole local food thing. Please can you come and cook a dinner in our region using all our local produce so that our people, the people who live here, can see what a fantastic, you know, thing their region is and what's special about it. You know, in that chick flick Sweet Home Alabama, Reese Witherspoon walks into her old home and she says, he hasn't watched you need it, another... <laughs> no, that's why I'm citing it so that you know what it is. 
But um, not that I've seen it. No. Sure. <laughs> but, <laughs> I love that movie. Anyway, I digress. She walks in and she goes, people need a passport to come down here, mum, because, and unfortunately, a lot of the regions feel like that. That's how they're... Uh, they feel they're being perceived by their big city cousins, you know. They're not flash enough. They're not fabulous enough. They're not inter-superlative here enough. Um, how you've done so much to overcome that, and this is brilliant, but how far do we have to go yet, do you think? Oh, it's still it's still a fairly long way to go. One of the things I'd say about that is that, it, you know, often I'll go to these regions like Roma or, you know, St George or whatever, and... and I'll be teaching them what they're growing in their region. They don't know themselves, you know. Um, I'll say, oh, you know, you've got a fish farm 100 k's down the road. I'll get fish from there. Oh, do we? Oh, and there's a blueberry farm, you know, in, in here I'll use blueberries from there. So it's about, you know, all of a sudden you're using 20 or 30 ingredients that all come from their region and it's not hard to find out. You Google it, you know. <laughs> you can Google, <laughs> Google yeah. fish, fish Roma and, you know, see what comes up. Um, but you know, so for them, it's an experience as well. And, and often I'll go and do these things, you know, last year was Roma. I did a dinner for 280 people and probably half of them were, were tourists passing through, you know, and coming to this dinner and being showcased all this stuff that's, you know, that's unique about Roma. Um, and so, but I think it still does have a long way to go. And that's down to, um, restaurants and, and, places actually taking some ownership of what's there and that's I think that's a big part of it that's something we've been working very hard on in Gympie region is to try and get the pubs and the clubs and the restaurants and the cafes to have local stuff on their menu and be proud of it and buy it direct from the the producers and develop those relationships and that's the only way that because it's all very well for people to go oh, I want to try local produce and when I go through Gympie but I can't because I can't get hold of it. I don't know, you know, the markets aren't on today or whatever. They need to be able to walk into any restaurant or cafe and go, oh, wow, they've got, you know, Kalula berries on the menu. You all have the Kalula berries pancakes things um, and experience, you know, what a true strawberry should taste like, that sort of thing. Um, but it's still a long way to go. You know, you do go to regional areas and you'd be flat out getting a um, any local element in a menu on a restaurant, you know, and, and that's... That's just about education and it's about, you know, it's getting there. It's about <laughs> something that I do um, that I have done in, a, in quite a few areas is go and actually talk to get a group of chefs and producers all in a room at the same time and I try to explain to them how to look at the, their, each other's businesses from the other person's point of view. So often what happens with buying locally from direct from producers is that the, you've got a farmer and you've got a chef, both very busy people, both very different personalities usually, and you've got, to, you've got to explain to them how to communicate really and how to make that relationship work so that it doesn't break down because mo- what often happens is chef, a chef will go, yeah, I want to use more local produce on my menu. They'll, uh, they'll go and see a farmer and eat. the farmer goes, yeah, mate, oh, I can supply you with chickens or whatever. And then the, the chef, you know, brings up and orders, you know, these 20 chickens and then they don't show up the next day. And he brings the farmer and the farmer goes, oh, no, mate, chickens all died from heat. <laughs> I can't bring them this week. And he doesn't have any chickens for the week. 
and he gets the shits and never ever buys from that farmer ever again. And I've seen that happen each times. It's, it's, it's sad. But what you've got to do is sit them down and go, right, now the chef needs his chickens. If you don't have the chickens, just send him a work out what's the best method of communication. Is it a phone call? Is it a text? Is it an email? And then get them to actually understand that they need to. So if the chef's taking chicken off the menu, he needs to contact the farmer and say, hey, mate, in two weeks' time, we're not going to be using your chickens anymore for a while. So the farmer's not producing those chickens and then they've got nowhere to go. So, you know, it's about communication both ways and a bit of respect and that's what can make it work. Otherwise, it does tend, I've seen it happen hundreds of times, people, you know, chefs will go, I really want to use local produce but it's just too hard. And actually segueing from that a little bit, back to kind of something you were talking about earlier, is this concept of collective consciousness. And one thing we've noticed in regional areas is this real need to collaborate and build social capital. So all those things, examples you gave are fantastic ways of actually trying to create growth through building of social capital and collaboration. But I want to touch back on something you talked about earlier around even packaging up products together to create leverage within the regions. Um, so, for example, the example you just gave, there might be two chicken farmers in the region. So if one chicken farmer can't provide, then another one can. They're not competitors. It's more about collaboration or working together to produce products that you might need two of to for the chef or for the restaurant. Um, how are you kind of encouraging that within the regions or are you seeing it happening at all? Yeah, look, and I think that's a, um, quite an important um, message as well. Not not every farmer, not every producer is going to be suitable for every restaurant. You know, if you're a massive, you know, a good example is egg, egg producers. So within the Gympie region, I think we've got oh, maybe four and possibly five really good free-range pastured egg producers some would produce 200 dozen a week, some produce 500 dozen a day, okay? And so the one that's producing 200 a week um, can't, can't provide a restaurant with 30 dozen a week if they're on a regular basis because they've got, already got customers. So you need to, I need to point those, the people who want to use that local produce, I look at their restaurant and I go, right, you need to speak to this person because I know they're going to be able to provide you with what you need. So... It's about matching people up as well and there's no point, you know, promoting me going out and promoting to all these chefs and restaurants, oh, you should use local produce. Oh, no, they only kill one cow a month, so they're not going to be much good to you because you'll only have four serves of I fill it for the month sort of thing. So, um, but, it's, you know, collaboration within within producers, I think it's the information that gets shared and, and um as people have success with things, so a lot of them are really a lot of our Kimpy producers through through the, the council running seminars and you know workshops and day things like that. They're all very um, social media savvy these days. They're all on Facebook. They're all on Instagram. They promote their stuff to you know to restaurants and and to the public, um, and they update. And they it's not like you know I'll. Ma and Pa sort of stuff anymore. It's actually really, they're really savvy with that sort of stuff. They understand the power of that social media thing. And then once one person, one of those producers sees another producer doing that constantly, constantly updating, they'll do it as well. So there's that. And they all get to keep in, they all get to see what each other's achieving as well. Um, 
So, you know, and I think that's that's a big part of it. Do you think for success to occur in these regions that you need something like yourself as a conduit to bring people together to drive that social capital or, for example, things like food festivals? I mean, I lived in Gladstone for a long time and I saw the Rocky Food Festival grow and you've had a big part in that as well. Um, and you mentioned the Mackay one had 60 producers come together and actually probably never even knew that they existed. So... For some of this collaboration and social capital to occur, do you think there needs to be either the council or someone that acts as a conduit to make that happen? Yeah, the council's a big part of it, I think, because you can have kind of um, a group that goes, yeah, we need to you know, promote this um, local produce of our region and, 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 and a few hardworking good people get together and try and do it and they either get knocked down or it's just too much work for them because they're already really busy people. It's good if an economic development department or or a tourism body can actually, you know, run with it, see the value in it and run with it and help, like, build a base of it. Otherwise, it, it tends to fizzle, you know. If they're, mm. I think um, things like the dinners that, you know, that I get to go and do, which I love doing, I, I end up meeting all the people in the town. <laughs> I've become sort of this resident of so many different country towns now. <laughs> like I go there and I just walk down the street and people so go, local. welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's those, but all, yeah, and also food festivals are great, you know, and then and I'm lucky enough to get to go to a lot of those and that's where I build those relationships with a lot of producers. I make a real, try to make a real effort. Before I go there, I, I research all the producers that are going to be at a food festival so I know what to expect, what I should be using in my demos, um, who they are and ha- how I can talk about them on stage. So if I'm doing a food festival and I'm talking food on stage, I'm there to promote those producers that are in that region. And I, you know, So as, as far as I'm concerned, it's not my job to just go there and teach people how to cook. It's to tell the stories of those producers and make them realise how proud they should be of you know what they've got in their town. Um, but, yeah, food festivals have become a, a really big thing now and, and I think it's great that people are so interested in it. The public really want to know about it. You've taken a real grassroots approach, and I know that's a, a, an oft-used cliche, probably overused cliche, but you've taken a really strong grassroots, back-to-basics kind of approach to bringing people together. If we can extrapolate that out now to a broader scope and looking at entrepreneurs and innovators in general, do you think we make it a bit too complicated for ourselves? Do you think we sort of, you know, try all these fancy concepts and notions, but actually what we need to do is just those old-fashioned collaboration values, get back to those and just get back to basics a little bit, just like you say, communicate. Yeah, I think communication is a big part of it. There's And there's always, you know, um, I guess there's personality, personalities and egos and things to deal with as well in, in anything, in any business or, you know, and it doesn't always work. It's not all lovey-dovey stuff that goes on, especially in regional areas, you know. There's often... You think? There's a lot of bad <laughs> Open. There's people who don't like each other necessarily. And I've never encountered that, Matt. Oh. Oh, well, <laughs> you, must, you must stay indoors a lot. <laughs> uh, I am a taster, yeah. So it's all very well to say there should be more collaboration, all that sort of thing. And there often there is, you you know, groups of people who, who do collaborate and help each other in business. And, but there's often also people who, um, you know, very defensive and very... Uh, you know, the, the, I know that there's producers within areas that I've seen that are, um, 
you know, they're insecure about worrying about that, you know, their business is going to be overtaken by some other business because they're, you know, people are going to like their stuff better or whatever. Um, whereas instead of looking at it as, you know, the more the merrier, the better, the more that this becomes a, a thing, the, be- the better it is for everybody. It's a good, a good example is if a, rest, you know, a restaurant in a, a town is busy and then another restaurant opens up, that restaurant can either go, wow, that's cool, it's going to be busier for us now because there's going to be more of a buzz and it's going to be more people coming to town and it's going to create more excitement, or they can go, oh, no, we hate them because they're, you know, potentially going to steal our business. So, um, you know, it's, it's hard to, some people will get that and some people won't. Is that is that as finite as that that some will get it and some won't? Is there a, is there any way of breaking down that? Yeah, you think so? You can't you can't cut through that. I mean, you'd hope to think that you could. You can try and educate people that, that that's you know there's a certain way you should think, but mm-hmm. it's you know especially in the restaurant game and in the cooking game, it's it's full of egos and insecurity. You know, <laughs> it's a creative business. Any creative business, you know. Um, there's always you're always going to be insecure that someone's better than you or more creative or they do stuff better than you. It's just the way it's, it always is. So it's why often you know restaurants and chefs and and that sort of thing do bitch about each other, like probably like hairdressers and you know journalists. <laughs> journalists. journalists yeah. Okay, so taking that from um, you know what you do in your journey, and I'd like to kind of sort of drill down to your motivations for innovation, entrepreneurship. So you you know you started your own catering company that went for about six years. Um, you know I've I've read a blog about you where it says you have a knack for making something out of nothing when you're cooking, and I think that that's a real skill for for an entrepreneur or an innovator as well. You know I love the concept of fake it till you make it. I do that a lot. Yeah. Um, so um, tell us a little bit about your, ins- you know, your inspiration or kind of, um, you know, h- how do you, how do you do that? How do you make something out of nothing, obviously from a cooking perspective, but also, you know, from when you growing your catering, your business and things like that as well. Yeah. Well, I think Ready Steady Cook helped with that. <laughs> that was one of those things. I did that for I think nine years, that show. And that was a great example of having to think on your feet very, very quickly because I mean, people, people often you know, will say to me, oh, that show wasn't, you didn't really, you knew what you had in the bag before you started and you had more than 20 minutes. Nuh-uh, that was exactly how the show was. <laughs> you didn't know what you had until you walked onto the stage and they brought a bag and dumped all the ingredients out on the bench and you actually only had 20 minutes to make four dishes. So, you know, and, and that's applying now to the, the other part of my life, which is to go to a town, um, be given a list of ingredients that I've got to work with, having to, instead of going okay, I'm going to do a dinner for 200 people, I want to cook this, this and this, I have to work the other way and go, right, well, I've got this, this and this to use, what am I going to cook from it? So um, it's made me have to, you know, and that's why I've always looked at food. That's what Ready Steady Cook was like. It was like, okay, well, this is what I've got to work with. What am I going to make with it? It's the same when I go to Roma or Villa Wheeler or whatever. Everything is... Um, is done from what's available to me. So it's a, it really is a thinking on your feet sort of thing. What, what drives your ability to do that? Is that just trusting your own skill? Yeah, yeah, instinct. Often you've got, I've got, I find that I've got to understand what sort of situation I'm, I'm going to be in when I go to one of these places. Often if I'm going back for a second or third time, at least I know then what to expect. 
um, as far as equipment and kitchen and people. And, and quality too, I'd imagine. Yeah, quality is mm. thing, you know. When you order beef cheeks um, for a dinner and you get there and they think you mean meant it's ass cheeks, <laughs> not it's uh-huh. actual cheeks, <laughs> that's, you know, stuff like that will happen. But I think, you know, one of the most important things to me is that if I'm writing a menu and uh, I, I, saw, I know my limits, that's one thing I learned on the British Daily Cook as well, is that you've got to know, that you've got to picture yourself doing it. That's what I always do is I go, okay, I want to do this dish. Uh, I've got this to work with. I want to do this dish with it. Can I see myself plating that up for 200 people out of a, you know, cattle yard, um, <laughs> concrete floor in a cattle yard with a barbecue and two dodgy ovens and a deep fryer? And if I can see myself doing that, yes, then I'll commit to that dish. Otherwise, if I can't see myself, I go back to the drawing board. That's your reputation on the line. Do you know? Like that's. Yep. Yeah, it, it's you know, and it and if you if you stuff it up, it's not going to be oh well. The eight other people that helped Matt weren't very good, were they? It's going to be that Matt Galinsky stuffed it up. <laughs> and the local parochialism, moreover, will not be that oh yeah, it was you know that, they gave me ass cheeks instead of cheek cheeks. <laughs> it was the chef. Matt was yeah, terrible. Yeah, you know yeah. that's what'll come to the oh yeah. Yeah, no, it is, and it's always so. You know, I don't think I've had terribly many failures yet. So, you know, it's, but it is. It's about a lot of it is. It is, you know, I live my life from lists. Everything's a list, and everything's timed, and everything's, you know, um, I have I have to be really, really organised, and I have to try desperately to not completely lose my shit most of the time. <laughs> That's a fair call. Yeah. Often it's um often it's a you know matter of just staying calm and keeping cool and, and you know, when I go to sort of a lot of these places, I'll say to the council of the organisers, okay, well, I'm coming out there. I'm coming out by myself to a dinner for 200 people. What what cooking students have you got in the town? Do they want to come and work with me? And they'll spend three days with me. And, you know, I went to Roma last year to do the Easter in the country and I'm going back again this year um, and I love it. I love going to the country. <laughs> I love going to the country. Yeah, I love towns like that. And um, they've got a, a TAFE college out there, cooking school, cooking TAFE. And um, I had about 10 students working with me for a few days in the TAFE college and then we transferred everything over to the cattle yards. And by the end of it, it wasn't, you know, they'd all learned heaps and they were excited about it. You know, these are country kids who'd normally, oh, whatever, you know, <laughs> like, you know, mm. oh, I don't care and, you know, well, any teenager really. Um country kids are probably actually better than city kids when it comes to that sort of thing. But, you know, that by the end of it, they were all so excited about cooking and about, you know, what they'd seen and they'd done this, you know, they'd actually put together a dinner for 280 people and served it and they were excited about it. But even more so, what I found out was that the parents were so excited to see their kids so excited that they were like, you know, the, the, the thing I heard within a day of me being there was that one of the parents had said, I'll pay for Matt to come back next year, um, you know, if you guys don't because he's been such a good influence on our kids. You know, he's actually got them excited about this. So to me, that's success. <laughs> like that's, that's the best possible scenario to me. Like, so, so it's not just about cooking. It's very much about leadership as well and community yeah. growth, um, particularly a lot of kids in these regional areas where they can get out in the country and that sort of thing. It's also um, stoking some of that passion to be a producer in the, in those, you know, for, in the younger generations as well. So your skills aren't just about being a great cook and being able to make something out of nothing. It's 
actually, by the sound of it, requires the leadership skills to walk in with 20 students you don't know and teach them how to cook for 200 people. Yeah, look, and I, I, I cherish that challenge, to be honest. Um, you know, that's I've been cooking for a long, long time and if I was to just be standing in a restaurant every day and, and do it cooking the same thing, I don't think I'd be terribly satisfied. I love the challenge of, you know, throwing myself into those situations and I, I'm... You know, the adrenaline rush that you get from it is pretty incredible too. I love that, that, you know, being under that pressure. You know, some people, some chefs, you know, the ones that yell and scream and get angry at everyone and throw pans and all that sort of thing, um, and, you know, to me they're not embracing the adrenaline rush. <laughs> they're fighting against it, you know, and so if you can you, you can feel it, you can feel the pressure of it and, and actually go, hey, I can enjoy this instead of getting angry about it. Um, and you, you know, so well, yeah, I love, I love the challenge and I love seeing kids excited about food because there's not nearly enough of that these days. Um, we're, we're desperately short of people becoming chefs in this country. Um, and the more we can encourage anyone to, to become involved in food, the better. The raw food movement and, uh, you know, eating clean and all of that has been a very big thing right across the board. And I think social media has helped break down those barriers between the metro and the regional settings. Are you finding more and more in regions that people are really conscious of the kinds of food that they're eating and how they're being nourished themselves? It's getting there, you know. It's, mm. um, it's, still, it's still an issue. Fresh food in the regions is certainly, you know, not, we're pretty spoiled when it comes to Sunshine Coast or Mackay or anywhere like that, but you go a little bit west and just the access to fresh fruit and vegetables and the variety and and the cost of it, you know, that's it's oh. prohibitive to a lot of people. And so, you know, we, we, we've got an epidemic of, of obesity in the regions, you know. You look it up. It's a thing, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's uh, certainly you'd hope to think that, in this day and age, there's enough information out there and, and everything, but really, yeah, I think it's still a problem for us. I think, you know, it's, um, I think all the cooking shows and everything, you know, that, that are happening and people getting more and more interested in food, maybe that might be helping to a degree um, for people to actually want to cook for themselves properly and, and eat well and, and all that sort of thing, but there's still a long way to go. From a community point of view, I mean, it can be a big morale thing too. Like it's, I lived in Mount Isa for a few years. Tara was at the Pilbara. Um, And the number of times, particularly through the wet, that you'd have weeks on end without tomatoes on the shelves, for instance, or you'd Mm. just be, the fruit and vegetable section anywhere um, would be just bare. So we just drank more. So we did. We had grapes as our staple. Um, so that was our fruit. And but, but I guess the point I'm making is that how is there a way that these communities can come together and is it an exercise that they can participate in um, to do like market gardens and that? And is there are you seeing an emergence of that in these more remote communities? I mean, I, there's certain things they can and can't grow there, sure. But is there a little bit of that happening? Yeah, look, well, there is a little bit of it. Um, I think that the thing that's going to lead the way is going to be actually school kids. There's more and more school kitchen gardens that they're setting them up in all schools now and kids are learning about food and they're actually going home and teaching their parents about it. Mm. Um, I'm seeing that more and more and I think that's fantastic. You know, there's um, I went down to Shevalum Primary School at end of last year because the kids, the, a couple of little kids there wrote me a, a nice letter and, 
they were going to have a they were, they were studying about slow food and um you know growing your own food and making bee hotels and making you know worm farms and all that sort of stuff and learning all this really lovely grassrootsy stuff and asked if i'd come down and do a cooking demonstration on their their special open day so they all had you know their own little stalls set up where they'd made you know juice or they'd made a worm farm or whatever so you can walk around and see all their different displays and um but you know and all the parents came along and it was great because oh that that was actually sort of bring the kids and the parents into it together and they since then a lot of them have gone home and put gardens in at home because the kids are you know encouraging their parents into it instead of the other way around so and it's fostering entrepreneurship really too you know um lemonade stalls and you know uh-huh. from their own lemons and things That's, like that right yep um and so i think you know we might see a, a shift in the next generation of, of, of kids start, starting to understand a little bit more about growing food at home and for themselves even if it's just you know a few herbs or some cherry tomatoes or whatever, just growing anything is good for, for your soul and good to understand a product better. So, Matt, what was, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, I saw this question when I was reading it earlier and it took me a while to think of it, but I reckon one of the biggest things for me, it's like best advice I was given as a young chef, was to read all the time, like cookbooks. And I'm not talking about cookbooks with loads of pretty fancy, glossy pictures in them. I grew up as a, as a young chef reading cookbooks with no pictures in them. Um, so, and these were cookbooks written by people like Stephanie Alexander or um, Alice Waters from Chez Panisse over in, in Berkeley in California. And they, they, it wasn't so much about, you know, one cup of sugar, two cups of flour. It was instilling um, an understanding of the philosophy of food and a respect for it that I learned from reading those sort of books. Um, as well as just reading recipes and getting to understand the levels of things, what should, what goes with what, what, you know, oh, okay, so you're putting fennel in that and so you, and you're adding fennel seeds and shallots and garlic to that as well and, you know, enhancing the flavour of that fennel sort of thing. So I spent a lot of time as a young chef doing that and I, I had female chefs when I was an apprentice. Um, all my um, head chefs were females and they were all very intelligent women who read a lot and so I'd follow I followed what they did and I'm very grateful for that you know they'd lend me their books and I'd go home and read them from front to back that's a really interesting point isn't it you know my my picture of a head chef is always a male you know and if you've all your journeys have been with female head chefs that's I find that really interesting it was probably pretty I mean that was a long time ago as well and it would would have been even rarer back then but uh, I'm very grateful that I that I did have those um, those women that, that trained me because they were very very good patient teachers and they were they had a different you know um, it, it's, I don't want to generalise but female chefs do tend to have a different um, uh, teaching way, style leadership style way of looking at food as well it's much mm. more um, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a Mother Earth thing. I don't know, but it seems like to me it's like you, you can tell there's a, there's a masculine way of cooking, there's a feminine way of cooking to me. 
And maybe I think that a lot of that's rubbed off into the way I cook now. So that's kind of coming back to that, you know, growing is good for your soul, but also, you know, cooking is good for your soul, that kind of family. I love the collaboration of coming together and cooking as a family, like our mm. Sunday night roasts, we do that with the family and we bring stuff that we've bought from the markets, uh, markets or stuff that we've grown from home and it's, it has more soul to the to the whole process. Um, and not to say that women are better at creating that, but women often are the ones in the kitchen creating that, um, mm. you know, the dinner yeah absolutely Mm. i love what you said there too about just stopping and reading it from cover to cover there's a lot of research around at the moment and tara you've you've done this similar reading but um around the fact that everything's so fast and chaotic and tech driven at the moment that we are digesting only partial bits of information and even then we're only partially digesting it you know whereas there is an increasing uh, regard now for stopping and going like doing a deep dive into something and really immersing yourself in that subject matter so you know your stuff um do you find that with your younger you know your apprentices and the the, the younger generation that you're working with um that you're investing that kind of deep dive in them and and encouraging them to do the same yeah i try to it's a different world though i mean now to when i was an apprentice there was no internet um, when I was an apprentice. That makes us sound old, doesn't it, Tara? Yeah, it no, just you. Uh, there was no mobile <laughs> phones either. <laughs> no, there weren't. You know, I often say now, when I was an apprentice, if you wanted to know how to book something, you had to go and find the book that it was written in. These days, you you, you know, if you, typed in, if you type in how to poach an egg, there's something like 6 million different hits on how to poach an egg. So there's information galore about how to cook absolutely anything. And I use that resource all the time as well. But I think for kids these days who are coming up cooking, I mean, that's, and that's what I say to them, you know, they've got no excuse to not know anything. Like if you're curious about anything at all, just type it into Google and, and look it up and their information is right there for you. Um, so they're actually at a much greater advantage, I think. But there's still something to be said for, you know, sitting down with a book and, and reading it for sure. But there's, there's also, you know, I wish I'd had those resources when I was young, you know, and I, I, I reckon I'd look up three things a day about how to cook something on my computer. Um, I use that resource a lot now. So with all your travelling around all these regions and being an advocate for so many regions and producers, how do you get time for yourself? How do you maintain your work-life balance? Oh, look, I have... Um, really busy times of the year and other times um, a little bit quieter. But one of the things that I insist on that I do a lot is um, is exercising probably uh, an hour a day, whether that's climbing the mountain or I'm going to live at, at Pomona so I've got the mountain right at my doorstep um, or I go for a run or I do exercise classes. Um, but I that to me is the thing that keeps me level, like keeps my brain happy and, um, you know, all that sort of thing. So... I um I make time for that each day. It doesn't matter how busy I am. If I have to get up at five in the morning and go for a run, then I'll do that or I'll do it, you know. Um, I'll find a way to actually do it so that, you know, and to me it's not, I don't want to be like the, the fastest guy in the race or the biggest person or the most buffed. I just do it because, you know, to keep me keep my brain calm, especially running. I love running because... The, I'm by myself in my own brain for an hour while I'm running um, and I get time to actually think and, you know, and relax and, and just be in my own head without any phones ringing or any emails coming in or, you know, people asking me for anything. Um, so 
you know, that's one of my big things. But, I, you know, I like to try and um, I play music as well, so I try to get, you know, get down into the music room and, and do that whenever I can as well. So It's a big theme that comes out with a lot of the innovators and entrepreneurs we talk to is that importance of self-care, <clears throat> particularly in startup space. A lot of them get so busy about just all the things that they have to do by themselves that they actually forget to look after themselves. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's important and, and I eat, I try to eat well as well at home um, because of my work's not, you know, I spent a, a good deal of my younger years as a chef always at work, you know, 80, 90 hours a week working, 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 never at home eating and now I'm at home, most of my work, you know, I'll go away and do these jobs but a lot of my time is spent organising stuff from home so I get to actually eat, um, you know, well at home every day. If you had the opportunity to write yourself, perhaps your 12-year-old self, a letter when you were first starting out, what would be the most salient points in there? What, what are the must-dos, the must do's, do you think? Um, probably trust you, trust my instincts, um, like my intuition. I've done only something that I've realised recently. If, if, you know, generally, and it, and it applies if I'm doing, going and doing a job like a big dinner or, you know, doing demonstrations or whatever, if I'm thinking it generally, I've just got to, I, I go with it. I just go, all right, I'm, you know, instead of doubting myself, um, you know, I've got the experience and, and everything and uh, the, to, to know that what, I, what I'm thinking is pretty much going to work. Um, whereas when I was younger, I think I probably doubted myself a lot more and, um, you know, would question what I was doing and worry about it more. Um, so that's a big one. Um, oh, don't take anything for granted, I suppose. Take every day, you know, appreciate every day that you're alive and, um, you know, that's um, that's a big one to me as well. Enjoy every of every day. I think that becomes more prevalent for me when I get older. <laughs> you know, sort of certainly as parents start to age and things like that, it becomes really relevant. You know, start the business, say yes. I love that whole Richard Branson theory, say yes and figure out how to do it later. <laughs> That's great idea. Thank you so much for your time. It's been um, a really inspiring uh 45 minutes or whatever it's been. I haven't even been watching the clock actually. So thank you for your time. The things that I really loved about speaking to you today, and there's something that oh, I visualize it myself. And I think a lot of innovators and people in that entrepreneurial space or that startup space would do exactly the same thing. And that's, can I picture myself doing it? And that's the, you know, you, you picture whether you can plate up um, these oshbosh kind of mixture of ingredients that you've been presented with in every, any given region. Region. I think it's a it's the same applies for anyone in this space where they're looking at what they've got at their fingertips, they're looking at their networks, their resources, everything else, and going, "Can I see myself doing this?" And if you can, well, great. Um, if you can't, well, how then do I get to that space? So that was the really big takeout for me. Thank you. You're welcome. Pleasure. My big my big takeaway, Matt, was very much um, which kind of is in line with the whole concept of Project Leap. You know, see the cliff and jump off anyway, and which is kind of in the theme of the kitchen. But you know, I still like that. That's Stay calm and embrace the adrenaline, the adrenaline rush. Feel the pressure and lean in. I love that. Um, mm. I think that's why entrepreneurs and innovators take on that role, why, um, you know, why they do it. And uh, I think that's important to remind themselves that this pressure isn't scary. You know, 
know, and actually it can make you a better person in terms of what you're doing with your business and your innovation. So um, that was a fantastic reminder. And also that more the merrier. Think about that collective consciousness. I really like that, particularly in regional areas because it's really valid. So thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Well, as we flagged before, we'll we'll get you two together again before that, much before that, because as we have flagged on um, Project Leap, previously what we do from time to time is um, in six to 12 months we'll revisit some of our uh, guests and see where they're at and how things are going and we might touch base we might even uh, get some video of you in Mackay or, or doing the gimpy the gimpy um, business and uh, just yeah we, we will certainly get the chance to touch base again soon so look um, to our listeners now thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Project Leap Uh, as I said you can follow us on Facebook or engage with us on our digital platform all of the details are on our Facebook page another shout out to our partners and sponsors without whom we wouldn't be able to make this possible so that's a thousand invisible threads Amanda Powell Digital iScribe Consulting Kaizen Media and Purple Wax Um, my name's Meredith Pappas Again, Tara Nevin, thank you for for joining us on this adventure again and another massive thanks to our uh, this week's guest, Matt. So thanks again, Matt. In the meantime, though, as we always say, Tara, take the leap. Take the leap.